0: I would now like to introduce our first speaker. Brother Jeffrey M. Bradshaw has a PhD in cognitive science from the University of Washington. He is a senior research scientist at the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, IHMC, for those who wanted to know. He he leads a research uh, group, he's a leading scholar in the field and important to us. Brother Bradshaw is a a great temple scholar. He has contributed uh, to our temple knowledge in many ways, including in his books and his articles. He's going to speak today on what did Joseph Smith know about temple ordinances by 1836, Brother Bradshaw.
1: Thank you very much, Don, and thanks to each one of you to be here. I feel very much among friends, and uh, especially knowing of everyone's uh, great interest in the topic which is near to my heart and near to the heart of Matthew Brown. It's an honor to be here to discuss this sacred subject. Matthew B. Brown, whose memory we honor at this conference, was one who accepted the teaching of Joseph Smith that the LDS temple, temple ordinances are of ancient origin. In his final years, Matt focused much of his attention on outlining the events that prepared the way for the restoration of authentic temple ordinances. Joseph Smith's early revelations and teachings demonstrate a detailed understanding of concepts relating to LDS temple worship. Many of these concepts were revealed more than a decade before the prophet began to teach them in ritual plainness to the saints in Nauvoo. It seems that by the early 1830s, Joseph Smith knew much more about these matters than he taught publicly problematizing the view that the temple endowment was simply an invention of the final few years of his life. We'll only be able to review a few of those um, items today. In my own study, The Origin of Modern Temple Ordinances, I focused on three major elements. One, the narrative and covenants of the endowment. Two, the sequence of blessings found in the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And three, the symbols of the priesthood that are meant to express temple-related concepts. Temple rites in the ancient Near East always prominently featured an account of creation, so it is with the LDS Temple Endowment, which begins with a creation story. The endowment continues with the narrative of the fall of Adam and Eve and concludes with the story of their upward journey back to the presence of the Father. The themes of creation, fall, and atonement are precisely what we find in the Book of Moses, which Joseph Smith translated in 1830 and 1831. The Book of Moses makes significant additions to the Bible account. These additions, principally dealing with events after the fall, provide a backbone of narrative illustrating the same covenants that were introduced to the saints more than a decade later in the Nabu temple endowment. To appreciate how the stories told in the book of Moses relate to the temple, one must first understand how the layout of the Garden of Eden parallels that of Israelite temples. Don Perry has shown that each major feature of the garden, such as the river, the cherubim, the tree of knowledge, and the tree of life, corresponds to a similar symbol in the Israelite temple. Bronze laver, the cherubim, the veil, of menorah, and so forth. And the journey through the temple can be seen as the journey of Adam and Eve in reverse. In other words, just as Adam and Eve were made to leave Eden, passing the cherubim and the flaming swords and continuing eastward out of the sacred garden into the mortal world, so in ancient times, the high priest would return westward from the mortal world past the consuming fire, the cleansing water, and the woven images of cherubim on the temple veils, back to the presence of God. Likewise, in both the book of Moses and the narrative drama of the temple endowment, the posterity of Adam and Eve trace the footsteps of their first parents, first that they are sent away from Eden, and later in their subsequent journey of return and reunion. As he translated the Bible in 1830 to 1833, Joseph Smith would have encountered descriptions of temple clothing, and particularly he would have been familiar with the story of the fig leaf apron and the coats of skins in the account of Adam and Eve, and the robes of the temple priests in the book of Exodus. In a visit to the Tyler family in October 6 through 8, 1833, the prophet affirmed a very specific description of this temple clothing, which corresponded to the temple clothing of ancient temple priests. The temple journey, whoa, I'm missing a slide here. There we are. The temple journey of return and reunion is made possible through obedience to the covenants, coupled with the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. In 1977, Elder Ezra Taft Benson, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, outlined these covenants to a general audience at the BYU devotional including, quote, the law of obedience and sacrifice, the law of the gospel, the law of chastity, and the law of consecration. Elsewhere, I've conjectured that an ancient analog to the Book of Moses may have been used as a temple text in former times. Consistent with such a view, Mark Johnson has argued that temple covenant-making themes influence both the structure and content of the Book of Moses. He observed that the author frequently stops the historic portions of the story and weaves into the narrative framework ritual acts such as sacrifice, ordinances such as baptism, washings, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And oaths and covenants, such as obedience to marital obligations and oaths of property consecration. Johnson goes on to suggest that while, for example, the account of Enoch in the city of Zion was being read, members of the attending congregation might have been put under oath to be a chosen covenant people and to keep all things in common with all their property belonging to the Lord. The illustrations of covenant keeping and covenant breaking provided in the book of Moses in 1830 and 31 correspond to the sequence of covenants that was introduced in the Nauvoo Temple a decade later in 1842. Significantly, Jack Welch found the same pattern as an analysis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which the commandments are, quote, not only in the, same, the same as the main commandments always issued at the temple, but they appear largely in the same order, end of quote. Deliberate structuring of biblical accounts to highlight a sequence of covenants can be found elsewhere in scripture. For example, the eminent Bible scholar David Noel Friedman called attention to a specific pattern of covenant breaking in the primary history of the Old Testament. He concluded that the biblical record was deliberately structured to reveal a sequence where each of the commandments was broken in specific order one by one. In summary, it is apparent that the translation of the Book of Moses in conjunction with his translation of other portions of the Bible would have provided a powerful tutorial for the prophet on temple narrative, clothing, and covenants, Long before he got to Nauvoo. The temple endowment is just one portion of a larger system of saving ordinances that precede and follow it. Indeed, Elder Johnny Whitso taught that the temple ordinances received on earth are a prologue to additional ordinances that will one day be made available in heaven. As Joseph Smith pursued his translation of the Old Testament, he encountered many figures whose experiences provided further tutorial about priesthood and temple ordinances. For example, as the prophet translated the stories of the patriarchs in in 1831, he inquired of the Lord to know and understand, quote, wherein I, the Lord, justified my servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also Moses, David, and Solomon, my servants, as touching the principle and doctrine of having many wives and concubines, and and brother Uh, Dan Bachman has written extensively about the context of of this particular revelation. The result of this inquiry was section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This revelation lays a doctrinal foundation for celestial marriage whereby worthy men and women who have previously been endowed may be sealed to their spouses for eternity. Later revelations and teachings of Joseph Smith elaborated on the stories and significance of exemplary figures such as Melchizedek and Elijah, explaining how the priesthood authority they held enabled the bestowal of additional, specific priesthood blessings. Careful study shows that a complete outline of priesthood blessings was revealed to Joseph Smith very early in his ministry. The second and third columns of this table show that the orderly sequence of these blessings was summarized in section 124, uh, on January 19, 1841, and again on May 4, 1842, the day the Prophet Joseph Smith began to administer these ordinances in the Red Brick Store. Significantly, however, the most complete list shown in the leftmost column was given by Revelation in 1832, a decade before the Prophet began to administer the temple ordinances to the saints in Nauvoo. Early revelation to Joseph Smith relating to the first two items, namely the narrative and covenants of the endowment and the sequence of temple blessings in the oath and covenant of the priesthood, have been discussed in detail elsewhere. Therefore, for, uh, I will focus for my remaining time today on the third item. I'll attempt to show that the most sacred symbols of the priesthood were also understood by the prophet long before the Nabu period. In discussing temple matters, I'll try to follow the model of Hugh W. Nibley, who was, according to his biographer, Boyd J. Peterson, Respectful of the covenants of secrecy about safeguarding certain portions of the LDS endowment, usually describing parallels from other cultures without specifically talking about the Mormon ceremony, end of quote. When D&C 124 was revealed to the prophet in 1841, he was told that there were, quote, the keys of the holy priesthood that had been, quote, kept hid from the foundation of the world and were to be revealed in the ordinances of the Nauvoo temple. However, these keys were anticipated and understood by the prophet long before. For instance, in December 1830, using language that resembled the later 1841 revelation, the Lord could already say to Joseph Smith that he had given him, quote, the keys of the mystery of those things which have been sealed, even things which were from the foundation of the world, end of quote. Likewise, D&C 132, received in 1831, teaches that to enter into exaltation and glory within the heavenly temple, the candidate for eternal life must be able to, quote, pass by the angels and the gods, end of quote. Elaborating the details of this requirement, Brigham Young taught that in order to do so, the saints must be able to, quote, give them the keywords, the signs, and the tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood, end of quote. In this regard, it is important to understand that each stage of that passage was expected not only to one was expected not only to know something, but also to be something. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has taught that in the day of final judgment it will not be enough to merely have gone through the outward motions of keeping the commandments and receiving the ordinances. The essential question will be what we have ourselves become during our period of probation. The fact that the ultimate efficacy of the saving ordinances depends as much on what we have become as what we know explains why names are so closely associated with keywords. Indeed, in a revelation given to Joseph Smith, we learn that, quote, the new name is the keyword, end of quote. According to René Guénon, quote, all ancient traditions agree that the true name of a living thing reflects precisely its nature or its very essence, end of quote. For example, according to Guénon, quote, It is because Adam had received from God an understanding of the nature of all living things that he was able to give them their names, end of quote, in the Garden of Eden. This principle is at work in ordinances such as the sacrament where the saints learn that they must not only always remember and be willing to take upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ, but in addition, must ultimately become ready to do so in actuality if they are to receive every blessing outlined in the ordinances. To take upon oneself the name of Jesus Christ in actuality is to identify him in such a degree that we become one with him in every aspect of character. Thus, as Nibley explained, quote, the importance of knowing the names of things and giving those names when challenged is more than the idea of a password. It is nothing less than the law that makes of the name a veritable attribute of the thing named, end of quote. In 1829, Joseph Smith would have encountered this principle as he translated the words of King Benjamin, who understood why those who did not take upon themselves the name of Christ for obedience to the end of their lives must be called by some other name. A good example of the same principle can be found in the rites of kingship In old Babylon, such as those performed at Mari, it should be remembered that the Babylonian creation epic Enuma Elish used in the rites of royal investiture both begins and ends with the concept of naming and that as elsewhere in the ancient Near East, quote, the name properly understood by the informed discloses the significance of the created thing, end of quote. If it is reasonable to suppose that the function of knowledge of sacred names and initiation ritual elsewhere in the ancient Near East might be extended by analogy to old Babylonian vestiture liturgy, we might see in the account of the 50 names given to Marduk at the end of Enuma Elish a description of his procession through the ritual complex in which he took upon himself the divine attributes represented by those names one by one. Ultimately, it seems he would have passed the guardians of the sanctuary gate to reach the throne of Ea, where, he, where, as related in the account, he finally received the God's own name and identity with the declaration, quote, he is indeed even as I, end of quote. The theme of God's disclosure of his own name to those who approach the final gate to enter his presence is reminiscent of the explanations of facsimile two from the book of Abraham that date to sometime between 1835 and 1841. In figure seven of that facsimile, God is pictured as, quote, sitting upon his throne, revealing through the heavens the grand keywords of the priesthood. Now let's talk about the signs and tokens. The use of signs and tokens as symbols connected with covenants made in temples and used as aids in sacred teaching also goes back to the earliest times. For example, the raised hand is a long-recognized sign of oath-taking and as will now be discussed, the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle contain various tangible tokens of the covenant related to the priesthood. By way of analogy to a possible function of the items within the Ark of the Covenant, items that relate to the higher priesthood, consider the Greek Eleusinian mysteries, which endured over a period of nearly 2,000 years. These rites were consist, said to consist of legomena, things recited, dicomena, things shown, and dromena, things performed a sacred casket contained the tokens of the god which were used to teach initiates about the meaning of the rites. At the culmination of the process, the initiate was examined about his knowledge of these tokens. Having, quote, (laughs) having passed the test of the tokens and their passwords, the initiate would have been admitted to the presence of a god, end of quote. In addition to the physical representation within sacred containers, such as the Ark of the Covenant, tokens could be expressed in the form of a hand clasp, a precise image for absolute unique individuality and perfectly joined unity that could be used as an act of recognition and reunion that is also a test of knowledge and identity A study by Stephen Ricks has shown that clasped hands have been a popular symbol of the marriage relationship since ancient times. As exemplified in this image and inscription for Jean-Baptiste Robay, age 70, and his wife, Rose DuClochet, age 72, who passed away on the same day in 1832. (laughs) This was also a symbol used by the prophet Joseph Smith by at least 1835. For example, Matt Brown observed that on November 24, 1835, Joseph Smith, quote, performed a marriage ceremony by the authority of the everlasting priesthood. He requested that the bride and groom join hands, and then they entered into a covenant while the prophet pronounced the blessings that the Lord conferred upon Adam and Eve, end of quote. Although many of the images of marriage partners show a simple hand clasp, a a significant number from ancient times pointedly feature a somewhat different gesture where the hand of the man is placed over the wrist of the woman. For example, Nicoletta Isar has analyzed a similar series of images from Greek attic-painted pottery that show a certain ritual gesture of the bridegroom God holding the wrist of his bride that she takes as representing the bond created by the nuptial ritual. Importantly, Isar sees the ancient ritual nuptial gestures as strikingly similar to the gesture of Christ that raises Adam from the dominion of death in the Anastasis depiction of the moment of resurrection, which he rightly denominates the princeps theme of Byzantine iconography. Izar brilliantly concludes that the gesture of the hand of Christ grasping the wrist of Adam, an anchor sure and steadfast that binds them together in unbreakable fashion, represents not only, quote, the meeting ground of both life and death, end of quote, but also serves as, quote, a visual metaphor of the nuptial bond, an equally indissoluble union, the conjugal harness by which both parts are yoked together. This metaphor is visually heightened by the stigma on the hand of the Savior that is carefully positioned at the exact center of the image overlay precisely both the cross of Christ and the wrist of Adam. This imagery will be meaningful to Latter-day Saints, who, like Adam and Eve, become partakers of the divine nature, and by virtue of this fact participate in Christ's sufferings as well as his glory. Nowhere is this fact more apparent than in the temple where, as Truman G. Madsen pointed out, quote, a full-scale covenant relationship, the atonement of Christ, may be written, as it were, in our very flesh, end of quote. One is obliged, writes Eugene Seach, to become not only, quote, one flesh with Christ, but also one life, one sacrifice, thus participating actively in the eternal act of love which began in the heavens. End of quote. Islamic tradition associates the marriage of Adam and Eve with acts of recognition and naming. Adam, before the fall, and having been, and before having been, and before the fall and after having been given instruction by God, was directed to recite a series of secret names to the angels in order to convince them that he was worthy of the elevated status of priest and king that had been conferred upon him. This test of Adam's knowledge of certain names culminates in an examination to determine whether Adam could identify Eve and recite her name. Notice the words Al-Talabi uses to describe the incident. Quote, When Adam awoke from his sleep, he saw Eve sitting at his head. The angel said to Adam, testing his knowledge, what is this, Adam? He answered, a woman. They asked, and what is her name? He replied, Eve. Al-Talabi precises that when Adam and Eve were rejoined after the fall, they recognized each other by questioning on a day of questioning. So the place was named Arafat, questions, and the day Irfa, which means knowledge or recognition. Sacred hand class were also used in Christian prayer circles. For example, according to the Acts of John, Jesus concluded his final instruction to the apostles with a choral prayer in which, quote, he told them to form a circle holding one another's hands and himself stood in the middle, end of quote. Sacred gestures according with greetings and prayer are mentioned in the revelations of Joseph Smith as early as January 1833. For example, in D&C 88-120, uh, the Lord gave the commandment that all your salutations may be made in the name of the Lord with uplifted hands to the Most High, end of quote. Zebedee Coltrane recorded that at the Kirtland School of the Prophets on January 23rd, 1833, the participants were, quote, to wash themselves, put on clean clothing, in likeness of the Israelites, Mount Sinai, and then engage, quote, in silent prayer, kneeling with our hands uplifted, each one praying in silence, end of quote. In this instance, the prayer with uplifted hands was followed by an appearance of the Father and the Son. In the interest of time, I will not detail the many biblical examples given by Matt Brown, Stephen Riggs, David Calabro, and others of how sacred hand clasps have been associated with ritual or actual ascent to the presence of God. However, I will note that that sacred hand clasps, the the Mandeans, whose history may intersect with the disciples of John the Baptist still continue a ritual practice in which the kushta, a ceremonial handclasp, is given three times, each of which, according to Elizabeth Drower, quote, seems to mark the completion of a stage in a ceremony, end of quote. At the moment of glorious resurrection, Mandean scripture records that a final kushta will take place, albeit in the form of an embrace, what the Ginza calls the, quote, the key of the kushta of both arms, End of quote. In this respect, the two armed embrace of Mandian ritual can be seen as an intensification and a fulfillment of the hand clasp gesture. Uh, it is an intensification of the hand class because it substitutes the symbol of an unbreakable bond between two individuals for an even more powerful symbol that signifies absolute unity and oneness in all things. It is a fulfillment of the hand clasp in the same sense that the fully rendered circle and square represents the fully completed work uh, full completion of the work that the tools of the compass in the square were designed to perform. Here, then, is what the Ginza says about the culminating moment where the Mandean exits the mortal world and enters the world of glory. Quote, Seth, the son of Adam, was brought to the watch house where Silmais, the treasurer, holds the nails of glory in his hand and carries the key of the kushta of both arms. They opened the gate of the treasure house before him, lifted the great veil of safety before him, introduced him and showed him that vine, meaning the tree of life, its inner glory. Seth the son of Adam spoke, on this same way the path and ascent which I have climbed, truthful, believing, faithful and perfect men should also ascend and come when they leave their bodies at death. Another account in the Ginza reads, when it, meaning the soul, arrived at the gate of the house of life, the escort comes to meet it. He bears a resplendent wreath in his hand and a garment in both his arms. The life stretched out his hand and joined in communion, meaning uh, Lafa again an embrace, just as the elect joined in communion in the place of light. In what Willard Richards called the sweetest sermon from Joseph he ever heard in his life, the prophet described a vision of the resurrection that, like the Mandean ritual, also included an embrace. Quote, so plain was the vision, They're speaking spoke Joseph Smith, I actually saw men before they had ascended from the tomb as though they were getting up slowly. They took each other by the hand, and it was my father, my son, my mother, my daughter, my brother and sister. When the voice calls for the dead to arise, suppose I am laid by the side of my father, what would be the first joy of my heart? Where is my father, my mother, my sister? They are by my side. I embrace them, and they me. End of quote. Students of the Bible, of course, remember the symbolism the embrace in the story of Jacob. Students speaking of Jacob's dream of the heavenly ladder in Genesis 28, Elder Marion G. Romney said, Jacob realized that the covenants he made with the Lord were rungs on the ladder that he himself would have to climb in order to obtain the promised blessings, blessings that would entitle him to enter heaven and associate with the Lord, end of quote. Thus, the prophet Joseph Smith correlated the three principal rungs of Jacob's ladder with the, quote, telestial, terrestrial, and celestial glories, or kingdoms. Later, Jacob wrestled or embraced, as it may also be understood, an angel who, after a series of questions and answers in a place that Jacob named Peniel, Hebrew face of God, gave him a new name. Matthew Brown, by the way, gave me a copy of this picture. The symbolism of the embrace is also apparent in the similar stories of Elijah and Elisha, each raising a dead child back to life. The more detailed account of Elisha reads as followed, quote, And he, Elisha, went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands, and he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm, end of quote. The threefold repetition of the act in the story of Elijah clearly points to a ritual context, perhaps corresponding to a similar Mesopotamian procedure where the, uh, the healer superimposes his body over that of the patient, head-to-head, hand-to-hand, foot-to-foot. According to Riesenfeld, whose careful study of the Old Testament instance of raising the dead showed detailed parallels to the later miracles of the Savior, it is perhaps more than chance that miracles of revivication performed according to Jewish belief by Elijah, Elisha, and Ezekiel, each prefigured the coming Messiah in some way, have reached their fulfillment in the messianic activity of Jesus Christ. End of quote. According to Sparks and Gilquist, the action of Elijah arriving a dead child can also be seen as pointing forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Matt Brown brought attention to medieval paintings such as this one by Lorenzetti that echo the actions of Elijah and Elisha showing specific points of contact with the Savior at his death, face, hand, knee, and foot, within an embrace across the chest. In the interest of time, I'll just uh, run through these uh, analogs of the mural of Ezekiel at Dura Europos in, in quick answer. Basically, we uh, in a 2010 article in BYU Studies, you can read more about how this provides evidence for a set of Jewish mysteries that existed during the diaspora period in Jewish literature and, and connect to... Philo and perhaps back to the to the uh, uh, Solomon's temple. Let's see. There are three uh, kinds of clothing show here. The, the pink Persian smock, uh, the simple pink attire, and then a white robe. And then as he returns to the earth, he's back in earthly clothing again. Uh, there are marks on the celestial clothing of the worshipers who are found praising God with uplifted hands in the celestial realm. Uh, Goodenough noted that the distinctive marks are found, by the way, not only in the Dura murals, but also in a cache of white textile fragments also discovered at Dura. According to Goodenough, these fragments, quote, may have been fetishistic marks originally on sacred robes that were preserved after the garments had been worn out. Another interesting aspect is that the four divine hands that come from heaven, and the interesting thing that Goodenough points out is that they're both in each case right hands, but in the one case in the first two cases the palms are facing forward, and in the other case the nails are facing forward. Clearly showing uh, a progression in the ordinances being represented, <clears throat> which included the resurrection being brought to life, uh, and he, used, he gets into analogs such as the changing of shoulders on the Jewish prayer robe or moving of the tassel and graduation from one side to another. Uh, immediately above the Torah. Uh, their very Torah shrine, their symbols of the resurrection, including at right the story of Abraham and his sacrifice. Margaret Barker interprets this detail, which some have taken as someone entering a tent, as a figure going up behind a curtain held by a disembodied hand, the symbol of the Lord. Since the temple curtain represented access to the presence of God, this seems to depict Isaac going to heaven. In support of her conclusion, Barker cites Jewish and early Christian texts suggesting that in the Akedah, Isaac literally died, ascended to heaven, was resurrected. Of course, though, the themes of death and resurrection could just as easily fit a ritual context. Skipping ahead, of course, the keyword signs and tokens would be of no importance unless deception were a real possibility. Thus, in addition to their ancient use as part of the most sacred forms of prayer, and as part of ritual and actual heavenly ascent, a knowledge of these things was important in detecting evil spirits. Extra-canonical accounts of Adam and Eve's experiences after they leave the Garden of Eden are replete with stories concerning the unsuccessful attempts of Satan to deceive Adam and Eve. For example, Stephen Robinson notes in one account the significant warning given that Adam gave to Eve. Quote, "'Take great care of thyself, except thou seest me and all thy tokens, my tokens, depart not out of the water, nor trust in the words which are said to thee, lest thou fall again into the snare.' Thus properly equipped, Eve does not succumb to Satan the second time." When did Joseph Smith learn about the keys by which he could detect true messengers from false ones? Arguably on May 15, 1829, when John the Baptist restored the keys of the ministering of angels to him and Oliver Cowdery. During this experience on the banks of the Susquehanna, it seems that Satan appeared to deceive the prophet and thwart the restoration of priesthood authority. As the prophet later recorded, Michael or Adam came to his aid, detecting the devil when he appeared as an angel of light. Thus, according to Joseph Healy McConkie and Craig Osler, the right to receive the ministrations of angels and the ability to discern true messengers from God, from counterfeits, came before the church was organized. Final conclusion then. What did Joseph Smith know about the LDS temple ordinances by 1836? Plenty, it seems. If it weren't for the additional significant effect, event of April 3rd, 1836, when Moses, Elias, and Elijah appeared to the prophet in the Kirtland Temple to restore priesthood keys, we could have almost given a terminus post-quem for Joseph Smith's knowledge of the topics we've outlined at a point three years earlier, 1833. And although our selected survey here may have been exhausting, it has not been exhaustive. Given Joseph Smith's disinclination to share these details at the most sacred events and doctrines publicly, it is certainly possible he received specific knowledge about temple matters we have discussed much earlier than evidence per, per, currently permits us to demonstrate. It is obvious from careful study that Joseph Smith was acquainted with major elements of LDS temple ordinances very early in his ministry. It is my personal witness that the LDS temple ordinances are, as Elder John A. would so affirm, quote, earthly symbols of realities that prevail throughout the universe, end of quote. They point to heavenly meanings beyond themselves, meanings that can be revealed through our minding true things by what their mockeries be. The ordinances perform an essential earthly function, helping make us ready someday to behold the face of God, as did Moses. Indeed, those who participate in the ordinances of the temple are shown in ritual what Moses and others throughout ancient and modern history have experienced in reality. Thank you.
0: Uh, Dan Bilknap, where are you? Come on down, Dan. Come get s- set up. Uh well then getting set up uh we have time for maybe one or two questions.
1: computer yes. at you like that? Yes. Will the uh transcript be available Go ahead. We
0: are going to publish the proceedings of this conference, yes.
1: I will also be publishing a longer version of this article separately from what was presented today. Where will we find that? Uh, My my site is at templethemes.net. Give me another couple months. (laughs)
0: just <laughs> one more question any more questions thank you